because we were talking about electronics and, and you know, scripting or electronics and coding, it was kind of like, um, like rediscovering architecture or trying to reinvent it. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's episode features Eric Howler, the co-founding principal of Howler & Yoon, established in partnership with Mija & Yoon. Eric is also an associate professor in architecture and the architecture thesis coordinator at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. A focus on teaching building technologies and integration in the school aligns with the practice that drives design forward with projects that are innovative both technologically and formally. We're excited to share a conversation with Eric about the trajectory of Howler and Yoon and incorporating digital processes into its projects, issues of representation in the design of monuments, and the role of collaboration in their work, among other things. Let's dive in. So today on the podcast, we have Eric Howler. Eric, thanks for joining us. Sure. Happy to be here. Great. So to get started, with what principles, perhaps ethical, professional, did you start your firm? And how does that approach compare now to how you started out? I mean, I guess um, we didn't really know what we were getting into when we started a firm, to be honest. I feel like we, you know, we'd both been working for a long time, myself and my partner, Mijin Yoon. I worked for 10 years before starting a practice, and I feel like that's probably a bit unusual. I have a lot of friends and colleagues who started firms, and they often start like right out of school. I think there's a lot of optimism and uh, excitement, ambition uh, in starting a practice. Uh, I worked for 10 years, so... I had worked for others. I worked for KPF in New York and I worked for Diller Scafidio in New York. So uh, I always wanted to start a firm, but I never had a had a kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess you need a project to start a firm. You need a, you know, uh, Majin actually started her own practice before 2001. She was teaching at MIT. Um, and so she started what's, what she called MY Studio, like Majin Yoon Studio. So she was doing projects on her own, you know, renovating apartments in New York. She entering competitions, you know, doing design projects. Um, and actually probably the most important project of the early years was done, you know, as Mijin Yoon Studio, her white noise, white light project in Athens for the Olympics. So she was teaching at MIT. She was taking classes at MIT because you can as a faculty member. Uh, she took a class called How to Make Almost Anything at the MIT Media Lab. And, and that sort of opened up a kind of perspective on like, what could architecture be? You know, could it be interactive? Could it be responsive? Could it use electronics as part of its medium? Um, so she started doing projects as MI Studio. And I sort of joined kind of as, you know, um, <laughs> as labor. <laughs> I was I was working at Diller's Video and I would take a week off to, to fly to Athens to help install the project there and so on. So I guess when we got a commission, we started a practice together. And that's when I had to leave Diller's Video and move to Boston and, and start working with her. But in terms of preparation, like I don't think we were prepared, you know, and maybe no one ever is. But we sort of said, oh, let's let's work together. Let's design stuff together. And, and we thought about it that way, not about, you know, what project type do we want to do? You know, what uh, 
what mission we had. Uh, it was more like just sort of pleasure in design and a kind of optimism about what could design be. Um, the Athens project sort of opened our eyes to think about um, media. We said media is a material. So how do we think about information and media as a, as a sort of raw material for architecture? Uh, and with that sort of naivete, we sort of launched <laughs> um, into a, a, a practice, but still very much tied to academia. You know, Meiji was teaching at MIT and I started teaching at Harvard. And so we were kind of one foot in the academy, one foot in our studio. And we, you know, we hired students to help us. I think this is a, a common model. Um, but at a certain point, you start hiring students, you start hiring graduates, you start paying payroll. And then all of a sudden, it's not just, you know, it's not just fun and games. It's like you're you're paying someone's health insurance, you're paying their salary. And so then it takes on a different kind of seriousness in terms of we've got to make payroll, we gotta charge fees for our work, start to value your own time differently. So uh, I think it's an atypical uh, entry point to a practice, but um, but that's uh, that's how it happened. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure working for around 10 years, I think is what you said before starting your own practice, you really got a feel for what different offices are organized like, and it kind of gave you some ideas about how you might want your office to be organized differently or the same. Definitely. Um, I mean, certainly KPF is a, you know, a large firm with a global reach and, and a kind of a lot of experience, um, you know, kind of optimal optimized version of practice. Um, and then Diller Scafidio, when I started there, there were 12 people. So it was still in Liz and Rick's apartment. It was very casual, very informal, um, kind of inspiring, you know, just being around people, you know, full of ideas and, uh, and a little bit scrappy. And so um, when we started our own practice, we were like, oh, we want to be, you know, a little bit like that, you know, you know, thought, a thoughtful practice, not necessarily a professional practice uh, and the links to academia certainly kept us you know teaching and in contact with with students and other faculty and ideas um, and then the kind of entry point through electronics and responsive technologies was also kind of fresh and you know sort of we felt like we were rediscovering what architecture could be yeah and i think when you talk about kind of a little bit more of the media side of it or the data side of it and technology, I think that brings up maybe a question I had is what, how does the, how do these digital technologies kind of tie into the firm's approach to design, especially because I know sometimes there's digital fabrication processes that end up happening with construction. And then how do you think about these issues along with prototyping or modeling when you're doing the design process? Like, you know, Mitch and I studied at Cornell in the eighties and nineties. So you know, certainly pre-digital. I think I was in one of the first studios that tried to use like 3D modeling software, um, but it was so clunky and, you know, slow. And it was just like, a, it was a nightmare. And even when I started working, you know, I still had a mainline on my desk. You know, when I got a computer on my desk, the, the monitor sat on top of my mainline, so I couldn't, you know, move the mainline anymore. Um, and you could either draw by hand or you could draw on the computer, but there was no no mixing of those two formats. It was like one sort of knocked out the other, but it was very much on the, on the edge of CAD and digital workflows. So, I mean, that's certainly dating myself, but, but when we started practicing on our own 2005, 
then these tools were very much sort of mainstreamed and our students were very um, you know, versatile in that. Uh, we felt like we were catching up with sort of digital tools. And because we were talking about electronics and, and you know, scripting or electronics and coding, it was kind of like, um, like rediscovering architecture or trying to reinvent it. And so we sort of had to figure out like how should we put things together again now that we've sort of taken taken architecture apart and tried to put it back together. Um, it was super exciting to think about interactions between material, which we felt confident with, and then these immaterial factors like information or you know, responsiveness. Um, and I think our first projects really tried to figure out like, can we make space with just light and sound? You know, can it just be ephemeral and interactive, but not really physical material? Talked a lot about a different kind of sensorium, you know, not so much visual, but acoustic and audible. And so it was super exciting to, to think about that. I think since then, you know, the things that we were excited about in terms of, you know, microcontrollers and, you know, some of these things became much more available, like Arduinos and, you know, other kinds of electronics uh, became imported into architecture. And then I think people talked a lot about the internet of things and smart this and smart that. So um, we felt like we were kind of pioneering a sort of territory sort of at the margins of architecture. And that was pretty exciting. Now these tools have all become mainstream, you know, students, you know, are laser cutting and 3d printing and, but also water jet cutting and, you know, even robotic assemblies and robotic fabrication. I think we've constantly been learning and I think that's what keeps us, you know, young, <laughs> um, which is that we, we're in the same position our students are in. You know, we're, we have a bit more experience, but we're constantly confronting what can we do with this tool? How do we make a tool to make a tool? How do, and, and I have to say some of that ethos, I think, came right out of MIT. The Media Lab and the Architecture School were, were really thinking about, like, how do we prioritize making with new tools? What do new tools tell us about, about form, about construction, you know, so we were really kind of pushing to see like what, what these new technologies would sort of uncover architecturally. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that actually has, or like thinking about some of these models and especially digital fabrication processes, I wonder if you think that has um, an effect on some of the projects or just the way that you design. Because I've seen, or at least to me, it seems like there's this recurring element sometimes of um, using the aggregation of smaller elements to create a whole form. So you have the Collier Memorial or the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers at UVA, or even maybe the precast fluted panels for 212 Stewart Street. Um, I think those all kind of come out of digital processes, but they also have a lot of links to um, some more like just like the actual process of construction and going through um, and thinking about materials. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I mean, um, when we worked on Collier, that was kind of a, a kind of eye-opening project for us. You know, we we proposed basically an arch, you know, which is a kind of archaic, you know, building technology. It's, you know, stones trying to fall and then jamming and bracing off other stones and shedding loads. So that's like the oldest, one of the oldest forms of architecture. 
but we proposed a kind of a form and a kind of shallowness to an arch that really required the precision of, of digital fabrication. And so on the one hand, it was state of the art. On the other hand, it was super archaic. And that's what made it exciting for us. Um, but learning or working with fabricators, learning how they work and what questions of precision and exactitude mean for a fabricator who's trying to remove material on a block of stone that weighs a hundred tons. I mean, that's really kind of eye-opening. And, and we're like, well, what does it mean that we're interested in media as material? And now, you know, I say we're, we're interested in material after media, you know, material like stone after we run through processes like digital fabrication and digital forming. Um, and then how do we think about even construction, you know, digital surveying and 3D scanning um, and the kind of precision that's required. So I think um, some of those learnings, I think we are sort of learning about in real time and then trying to apply uh, on different projects. So Collier sort of opened our eyes to this process for UVA. We felt confident in that we could deliver a form with that kind of precision because we had just finished the Collier Memorial. And I should also say that, um, you know, fabrication and construction are different. You know, we tend to put them together, but fabrication is really one trade like stone. Um, but as soon as you start to run, you know, conduit through it and start to coordinate structure and enclosure and different trades coming together, then it shifts into some, you know, construction and Certainly bringing fabrication into construction, I think is super exciting. You know, you mentioned you had a talk with Frank Barco, you know, Frank is, you know, certainly pioneering in this area and one of our um, people that we admire greatly. And so we've been sort of watching Barco Leibinger and how they've used digital tools, not just for, for objects, but also for systems. And then systems become, you know, bigger and bigger and thinking about construction, not just fabrication. I think that's really exciting. 212 Stewart Street, that one maybe isn't as informed by digital tools, fairly analog, you know, pouring, you know, precast concrete into, into molds. Um, we like to be smart with our tools. We don't just make difference for different sake. We try to think about, you know, the fluting does many things. It sort of camouflages the height of the building, but the kind of shear lines, those coarse, coarse lines, you know, the misalignments sort of change the perception of scale. And and using multi-story panels, I think, helped us think about certain economies of construction. So we like to think that we can be smart with digital tools. We're going to be smart with, with construction sequencing. You know, I often talk about means and methods. It's like technically that's for the contractor. You know, architects sh shouldn't get involved with means and methods. But, but we're so curious about these things and we want to know what the design potential is if we if we propose a three-story panel does that mean the building goes up three times faster does that mean we can afford different things you know and, and could we find economies in thinking through material and thinking through processes so i, I often say like we're not prejudiced either way we, we like to think you know intelligently about digital processes but also analog processes um, and increasingly you know, there's, there's almost no separation anymore in a way. Everything is mediated. You know, there's no material that is unmediated you know, because we've already conceptualized it through these different processes, through our modeling, through our procurement, through our surveying, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to think about it, at least in terms of you were talking about economies, just because some of it 
I think sometimes in architecture, it's not always as clear why people are doing a certain design decision, why you kind of arrive at a form that you arrive at. And I think using some of those intersecting um, systems, almost the construction, the fabrication is an interesting way to learn more about both sides of or all sides of how buildings get made. But also, I think, like you said, it helps inform further projects down the line. Like you start to learn more about how material or like what you can really do with the material. So I think it all starts to inform things um, when you start having other projects, which I think is really great. I, mean, I think every project learns from the previous one. I think that's maybe obvious, but we really make a point of like pushing into areas that we know nothing about. Like we're interested in mass timber. Everyone's interested in mass timber. Like, how do we learn about mass timber? What can we use as a project as an excuse for learning? I would also say that constraints are super important. Like, if we if we have no constraints, then you know that's usually a bad sign. You know, uh, and sometimes when you think about you know budgets or 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 sequences or you know sometimes a, a good sort of site constraint or a fabrication constraint or even a budget constraint can lead to all kinds of interesting inventions. Um, and I was struck talking to a fabricator who kept saying like, I can do whatever you want. You can have a million unique panels. And I'm like, I don't want a million unique panels. You know, I want to know what your parameters are and I want to work with your parameters to find a form or a solution that's incorporating that kind of thinking into our design. Like, I don't want pure freedom. I want to like, I want to find kind of strategic freedom within a set of constraints. Um, and I think that's something useful to talk to students about who in architecture school are often unconstrained. You know, they're not constrained by, by budget, certainly. Um, they, they might be constrained by, by other things. But sometimes, sometimes there's incredible power to, to, to constraints because it, it sort of forces a kind of different way of thinking. Yeah. Um, I think maybe to return a little bit to... Not necessarily talking about the Collier Memorial specifically, but I think there is something very interesting in that project where you have these five half arches all kind of supporting each other. Um, But it's really relying on the notion, like you said, the archaic notion of masonry construction, but then you applied these digital technologies to create it. And I'm wondering when you have to use the constraints set forth by the memorial committee or whatever they want, they were asking for in a specific memorial. And then you're thinking about ways you could actually create something that would memorialize um, Sean Collier. I'm wondering how you kind of got from the initial idea of the arches or there's the, there's a void subtracted. How do you kind of bring that simple form of an arch and then make it a little bit more complex with the addition of all these kind of, you had to use digital tools to figure out how to solve that problem. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a unique project. I mean, I don't think we'll have that kind of opportunity again, but the the hunch that we had was that a kind of missing figure was, was an appropriate response to a memorial. So something that looks like there was something here and now it's gone, you know, that was really important. And then, so how do you sort of describe absence? You know, we talk about a kind of pantomime, like you're sort of almost sort of feeling out where it was, you know, tracing the edges of something. And 
in a way to imply a missing figure, you need a certain number of edges. You know, if it's a sphere and you have like one one circle, it's almost not enough to to define or imply that that form. We also had this idea that it'd be nice to create a sense of enclosure, a kind of a shelter, you know, so that you could be contemplative. You know, and of course, if you think about, you know, just making it, you know, a four-sided room open to the sky, it doesn't feel safe. You know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to be contemplative in public to provide just a level of shelter or enclosure to be thoughtful. Um, and so we thought about five rooms intersecting a, a fifth, a sixth room, you know, something that was spanning between them. And, and so the missing figure, it was literally a hunch. We're like, huh, what if we took another room out and, and we used the central room to, to connect these other rooms, you know? And so it was about bringing people together in the center, but also about sort of pantomiming a kind of missing figure. The idea of a stone arch, you know, that was maybe a, it sort of reinforced the first idea. But I think, if, you know, when we started thinking about it, like, could it be solid? And, you know, that was kind of a crazy idea. <laughs> you know, can we make a solid stone? And then we're like, yeah, it, you know, it has all the qualities of a of a keystone and a, and a set of buttresses. And certainly if we had made it regular, you know, four buttresses like this, I think it would have been easier to solve. But we didn't start by thinking it's an arch that needs to be optimal and then make it less than optimal you know we started with a kind of irregular arrangement of rooms and and then we tried to figure out how to make it work as an arch and i guess here's where the digital tools came in because you know we worked with john oxendorf at mit he was a structural engineer and he's like i can calculate this very easily it's a, there's a certain mass and there's a certain thrust and i can calculate the weight of each block and where that vector is and as long as the vectors are perpendicular to the joint lines then the forces are transferring um and as long as those vectors stay within the buttress you know it'll be it'll be stable so but the what he called the kind of analog sort of old school calculation we needed to back up with with the kind of computer structural engineering software and and then going back and forth between the kind of analog calculations and the and the digital ones, trying to come up with the same solutions. John and his grad students actually developed some custom software that would sort of take the volume and multiply it by the weight and, and then help us sort of visualize uh, a kind of custom plugin for Rhino to look at, uh, at the kind of vaulting. Uh, so then it became a kind of research project. And some of his grad students were developing softwares and then we were using that as a tool where we could develop forms and then verify that they were within the boundary of what was achievable structurally. It was, it was eye-opening on so many levels, formally, technically, from a kind of structural point of view, but also a kind of fabrication point of view. But we were kind of learning how to use tools. I mean, it was like, it was like real time trying and trying and trying to prove to ourselves that, um, that it would work. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I just have this idea or not necessarily knowing if this is true, but it seems like with a lot of other digital technologies, thinking about like smart cars or just other things, this isn't necessarily related to your designs, but it seems like in a lot of other spheres that digital technology just tends to replace whatever came before but it seems like at least in architecture and construction, all of those, like we use digital technologies a lot more to kind of inform some of the older construction processes or even structural processes. Like everything kind of exists on the same plane. Some people take more of the digital or less of the digital. 
but there is always a way that you can incorporate more archaic or like traditional methods along with all of the digital methods that you employ. I mean, we think a lot about obsolescence. I mean, we all do. We're experiencing it every day. Things that are here today are gone tomorrow, you know, so quickly, whether it's a trend or a technology. But actually, uh, obsolescence, I mean, there's certainly material obsolescence of building weathers. And then there's like social obsolescence, like nobody wants to wear bell bottoms anymore, or they want to wear bell bottoms again, you know? So there's kind of different kinds of obsolescence. I think technology, technological obsolescence is interesting because you, you're right. These things don't go away completely. And in a way, it's almost like, like drawing. We can draw on a computer, we can draw by hand, and it's good to, to do both, actually. You know, it's good to be able to, to draw by hand or model model by hand, you know, because one day the 3D printer's broken. And, and I, think, I think you just you have different ideas depending on the medium. So we encourage our students to, to work both analog and digital to develop both sets of skills. And, and certainly I'm, I'm a fan of like uh, not treating the, the model as a kind of presentation tool, but as a design tool. So if it has to be able to evolve. You have to be able to rip something off of it and, and stick something back on, right? If it's, if it's just assembly, then it's just, it's just assembly. But um, I like thinking about digital tools as really discovery. So um, it has to be able, you have to be able to change direction, you know, mid, mid process. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a little bit when you're talking about just thinking through some of the ideas for the Collier Memorial, kind of absence, how you start to kind of symbolize that in a memorial. And of course you have other memorials that you've done. And I'm wondering, like thinking about those issues in terms of symbolism and representation in architecture, obviously those are really sensitive issues because when you're making landmarks and monuments, how can you really accommodate these multi-level narratives? I'm wondering how, at least on the monuments that you have worked on for the firm, how do you relate your approach kind of within this discussion of representation, symbolism, how you arrive at really the right form or who do you involve in the process to make sure that you're creating these works that you think represent what you're trying to have them represent and maybe leave them open as contemplative contemplative spaces even as well. We went to school in the in the 80s and 90s, which is probably the height of like you know, the modernism and maybe the sort of beginning of the structuralism or when it was really sort of taking off in, in schools, say. Um, so, you know, we read a lot about literary theory and semiotics, you know, and certainly postmodernism was concerned with meaning and representation. But we were always skeptical of a kind of one-to-one relationship between a kind of form and a kind of meaning. Modernism in the kind of North American sense is about Western architectural motifs sort of redeployed, you know, for different audiences. How do these translate into non-Western contexts? You know, like the reader doesn't always get the same content from the same form. Um, and just thinking about that whole trajectory of architecture in the 80s and 90s and thinking about a kind of open-ended text, something that's, that's more open to interpretation, um, has a very particular uh, that it needs to convey, you know, and, we fell back on a strategy of abstraction, you know, something that, that you feel in your gut, you don't necessarily understand it intellectually or culturally, or, you know, do I have to know the history of modern architecture or classical architecture or Western architecture to understand what's going on here? 
um, the Kali Memorial, you feel something, you know, something is missing, something is, is wrong, maybe, and it's unsettling and uncanny. And so we were relying on the kind of, you know, stone in the air, uh, a kind of contour, you know, running your hand on it, hearing a different kind of echo, different acoustics. Like these are all clues that tell you that something is unusual, something is special or unique um, language or symbolism. You know, I think people say, oh, it looks like something's gone here. Like um, it doesn't require uh, any sort of knowledge or pre-knowledge or, or, or cultural signifiers. Um, there was a lot of desire from the committee to have it be patriotic, to have it sort of imply a kind of American flag or a star or you know, stripes or, you know. And so um, your looks like a hand, maybe, you know, it looks like a hand. That's great. If someone thinks it looks like a star, that's great. Um, want to sort of overdetermine what it means. Um, that's when we sort of get in trouble. You know, it means something to me. What does it mean to you? Um, I think, we wanted to stay away from easy or direct or overt symbolisms. Um, you know, a circle is such a simple form. You know, it's a form of, we think, collectivity, non-hierarchical collectivity. If you stand in a circle with people, you know, no one's the boss, right? Like King Arthur's table. You know, there's no head to King Arthur's table. Um, it, was a, it was a kind of a very basic geometry and arrangement, which everyone could agree on. Um, and this in the middle means that it's not like a statue of a, of a hero or a general that, that organizes space around it kind of radially. It's a, it's a hollowing, it's a void. Um, it speaks to a different kind of way of gathering. Um, someone said it looks like a broken shackle. And I was like, that's fine. Great. You know, um, it does involve, it has a water feature and, and there's water running in it. And for some people, water is cleansing, it's rebirth, it's, it's escape, you know, or evocations there. Um, and weren't, you know, ignorant of what does water, how is water associated in architecture? But we also didn't want to overcode it, say, this is the river of this and this, you know, like we didn't want to apply meanings because we knew people would find their own meanings. And, and at UVA in particular, people have, have read things into it that, that are beautiful. Um, and we, we didn't want to impose our own sort of symbols or meanings onto, onto something so important. And maybe to expand a little bit on that, those processes in particular, because they are, they were monuments. I'm not sure how much this applies to some of your other projects, but how did that, how do those designs really evolve on a collective level? How do you get, because you have sometimes on projects, there's the team involved at the firm, there are other collaborators involved, whether they're designers, artists, or experts. And then sometimes you've even had involvement at the community level. And I'm wondering how you really mediate all of those different sources of input and really decide at the end of the day how things get done. In its best case, you know, ideas come from everywhere and they get sort of worked on by different people. Um, we say in our own office, like, it doesn't matter if it came from the principal or the intern or, you know, whose idea it was. I think if it's a good idea, we want it to, to sort of impact the process. And so we were looking back at Collier and wondering, like, whose idea was that? Like, I don't even remember. You know, it was, it was like, it was a hat and then something was drawn and something was modeled and then something was 3D printed. And then, you know, and that's, that's the best process where it's like, it's not like, so one way, you know, the principal produces a sketch and hands it down. Like I think 
we want a studio to be like ideas you know, ricocheting off the walls and um and we expanded to our collaborators you know we worked with mabel wilson you know from columbia who's a designer and a historian we worked with um frank dukes who's a kind of community engagement expert and Greg Bleem is a landscape architect and Eto Ojigbe, who's a visual artist. And when we'd meet with them, like ideas were just were flying, you know, and it was great. People were pinning things up and saying, this reminds me of this. And I'd love to think about that. Um, and at that point, it really becomes kind of um, just co-authored. Um, and that's ideal. And then you get to a neighborhood meeting and someone says, you know, I, I think it's important that it, that, it, um, that it speaks to me about not just the kind of violence of slavery but also the the joy like is there room for joy in this memorial is there room for celebrating the lives of those people you're like wow that's i love that i love the idea that it could be a place of joy as well as a place of remembrance and and a place of you know reckoning you know reckoning with a difficult history so taking someone's comment from a meeting a community meeting and saying yes that's part of our design like we have to fold that in um we see our job as sort of pulling all these things together um, and it bringing certain things into the foreground and pushing certain things back. But ultimately we have, we're responsible for, for producing one design, not, not 20. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get all these different ideas from different directions and, and synthesize them into something that people can agree on. But at UVA, we heard a lot of ideas and a lot of things were tried and tested. And in the end, I think we sort of, forms and geometries and arrangements and information that that people agreed would agree with and, and ultimately people could claim you know some of the descendants of the enslaved they feel like own that part and it's not for their ancestors and that's the best possible version of that project that, that they give tours to people and they feel ownership of that project and they interpret it and and they share their interpretations with people and that's really beautiful. Um, throughout those community processes, was there ever in maybe either of the memorials, was there ever kind of you, I know you, there was a lot of back and forth, but was there ever you were kind of showing this more abstract form for a memorial and was there ever pushback against kind of that course of action or how did you navigate Maybe you were saying on the Collier Memorial, they were thinking that they would like it to be more patriotic or a little bit more overt. And how did you really, how do you convince someone that maybe leaving it a little bit more open for interpretation is the better or, or the more collective course of action since more people can enter into it and feel like they're not being forced to take one meaning alone from it. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've studied memorials, you know, carefully and, you know, it's something that we've been interested in for a long time. As a student, I remember um, James Ingo Fried from Pick Up Fried had just completed his um, design cost memorial museum in Washington, DC. And that's a very heavy symbolic overt sort of reference to certain architectures and certain symbols. Uh, I remember wondering about that as a student because he lectured at Cornell when I was there. And then I remember with the professor, I did the competition for the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin. We entered that competition and, and you know, visiting Mylan's Vietnam War Memorial in DC. I mean, you feel the power of the kind of abstraction, but then you also know that, that there were many people who felt it was insufficient, that it didn't give a face 
to those soldiers. And so they erected a kind of more traditional sculpture of three, you know, servicemen, you know, adjacent to it. And somehow the kind of abstraction of Maya Lin's memorial sort of led to this sort of counter counter memorial, or not a counter memorial, but a, a complement, what they felt was complementing, basically addressing the kind of the insufficiency of the original, maybe with this thing. And I, I heard recently there was an idea to add a learning center. So it's like you have a kind of spatial abstracts memorial, then you have an image representation memorial, and then you have a learning center. Because, you know, these these are complicated programs and we thought sure to be erected next to the memorial after the fact. And and people were asking, like, could you have like a could you have a bronze sculpture of a, of an enslaved person? And we said, you know, we don't think that's appropriate. What would it look like? You know, who would it be? You know, there's all kinds of problems with that. But we did, um, you know, working with Eto, you know, we're like, we don't have a representation. But it turns out we did. We found a photograph of one enslaved person who was at UVA, who was photographed. And there's a record of her photograph. But we sort of took the photograph and translated into a kind of pattern that was sort of mapped on the outside of the memorial and I think integrated into in a pretty seamless way. So sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't, but it's certainly there. And I think for many people, they couldn't have imagined that response when they asked for the statue of an enslaved person. But I think we did address some of their concerns, which is like, how can we give it a face or how do we make it accessible? Um, you know, when I walked around the memorial with, with one of the descendants, you know, she said, you know, this is Isabella Gibbons. She's our witness and our watcher. You know, she's witnessed these, these acts looking over us today. So um, I think that to do things that, that, that a kind of bronze statue next to it wouldn't do. You know, I think it's, it's much more integrative than sort of applied or added to or added on. So I think that was, we couldn't have imagined it either, you know, at the outset. And I think we had faith that, that through this process together, we could figure something out that would be, would feel right. Yeah. And I think, I guess one of the benefits, I mean, you've talked about all of the, I think you've already very much well argued for all of the benefits, but I think it's nice that at least with more abstract memorials, the meaning can evolve over time as well as people apply their kind of own personal meanings to that. So I think that is a nice way also of allowing it to stay open for interpretation over time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of the, the, the tragedy of, of the UVM Memorial is that like the, there were about 4,000 um, enslaved people thought to work there and, and there was just no records, you know? And so how do you acknowledge someone's life if, if there's no record of their life? Um, these sort of blanks, these sort of underscores without a name that certainly leaves it open-ended almost, you know, um, by necessity, but also we wanted people to contemplate the missing names, you know, the kind of, why don't we know? You know because they weren't, they weren't recorded. They weren't, their names weren't even, you know, considered significant, you know, to, to, to keep them in history. So they were written out of history. Um, but I don't know if I mentioned in the lecture, but, you know, we've since added five new names because more names were, were, were discovered. And so there's a kind of hopefulness to that, that open-endedness, which I think is also, um, which is also right. Yeah, I think it's great that the, in that sense, that memorial is almost never finished. It's always kind of growing and changing. I mean, I think that's maybe a little bit more explicit 
representation of what usually happens with projects and architectures that they weather, they age, they change. Um, they're never really finished, even if they're constructed. So I think it'll be very great to see, hopefully, all of those spots kind of get revealed as people are inspired to do more research and really figure out all of these records and see who uh, worked there. Yeah, I think it'll, it's great that it keeps kind of developing onwards. And so it was a great, yeah, it was a great um, time having you on the podcast, Eric. Sure. Thanks for all the questions. It's nice to follow up with lecture with some sort of conversations. Thank you for picking it up again. For more information on Howler and Yoon's work, please visit the firm's website, howleryoon.com, or you can find them on Instagram at Architecture. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.